I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank every one of you for joining this new community that started last week with interviews of Landon Donovan, Tyler Adams, and Julie Foudy, which you should check out. This podcast is a joint effort with the Total Soccer Show, and it comes out twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Today's interview guest is another great one. Broadcaster Derek Ray joins me for a fun discussion on his long history and present with Germany and the Bundesliga, which is still the only major soccer league staging games. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could hit that subscribe button, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps, especially early on. You guys have been absolutely amazing, so thank you. Before we get to Derek Ray, I'll occasionally do some opinion segments on the show. It's not like I have a place to write right now. And this week's goes like this. The world is divided over fake crowd noise on your television broadcasts. This week, I put up a Twitter survey asking if listeners preferred having no artificial sounds or fake crowd noise on their Bundesliga broadcasts, as Fox has been choosing to include via a Bundesliga sound engineer. Nearly 5,000 people have voted, and it's almost evenly split, with 51.8% choosing to have the simulated sounds. Here's my take. I wish we had a choice, as viewers do in Germany. I actually don't mind the simulated sound in an extreme situation, but I thought the volume was too high for the Dortmund-Bayern game on Tuesday. Typically, as a journalist, I would have issues with simulated anything. But in soccer, I just haven't seen much benefit to hearing the natural sounds of the game in an empty stadium right now. Most of them are feet striking balls and occasional chatter, but nothing that I would say has taught me something new about how the game is played. That might be different in other sports, but not so much in soccer. But I can tell you what I don't want to see in the future, and that's artificial sound once fans are allowed back in stadiums. I can envision TV execs trying that one when there aren't enough fans at games, and that's a non-starter for me. In the meantime, I'd love to interview a German sound engineer who's artistically coming up with the soundtrack for the games we're seeing, and I'm working on that for a future podcast. Here now is my interview with Derek Ray. Our guest today is one of the great voices of soccer. You've heard Derek Ray just about everywhere on TV, calling Bundesliga games on the world feed, doing Premier League games for NBC, World Cups for Fox Sports, video games for EA Sports, and even the NFL and Premier League for Prime Video. Derek, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for the invitation, Grant. Great to see you. Great to be with you. Likewise. First off, how are you and your family doing right now? We're okay. I live in the Boston area here in Massachusetts, and it's been a while now, as it has been for everyone, um, working from home. And in my case, the working from home is, frankly, not working as much as I usually would uh, be doing in terms of broadcasting, because no live sports, not so much need for a live commentator, but obviously following developments very closely and blessed to live in a beautiful area near the coast here in Massachusetts. No travel. That's normally a big part of my working life. And on we go. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Germany in this podcast because that's mm. the league that's playing and you have a long history there. And before we get any further, I want to ask you about the big game. 
you know, what stood out to you about Bayern Munich winning at Dortmund on Tuesday to go seven points ahead with six games to play? What stood out for me was the quality of the game. I thought this truly was a top-of-the-table clash, one fitting of the situation near the end of the season with the two best teams in Germany, most people would say. And the other thing that stood out, the class of Bayern. They always seem to find a way to do it. You need that little bit extra in a game such as this one. And time and again down the years, Bayern have been able to find what's needed. And a goal such as the one we saw from Joshua Kimmich, I mean, when you get that as a neutral fan watching that, when you see a classy moment like that, you know, it's the sort of thing that gets you out of your seat. And, um, yeah, no fans. It's not football as it's meant to be at the moment. It can't be that way without fans. But we still saw a high-quality game. And I'm grateful for that because I know as a Bundesliga fan and a Bundesliga commentator that many other people were watching this game and have been watching the Bundesliga who perhaps normally wouldn't. And, um, yeah, so I thought the right team won. It was a close game, but hats off to Bayern. Yeah, you got to give Bayern credit. Uh, likely on their way now to another Bundesliga title. Do you think this title race is over? It very likely is. I don't like to declare things over before arithmetically that is the case. But with a seven-point cushion, I'm finding it very difficult to visualize in my mind Bayern throwing this away now. And I think Borussia Dortmund probably in the heart of hearts know that too. The strange thing is, Grant, it's been such a close race all the way through and Bayern haven't been leading all the way through. In the first half of the season, we saw various different teams on top. Gladbach for a spell, Dortmund, Leipzig. And it's only in relatively recent times that Bayern have reasserted their authority. But I think with this advantage that they have now, they are the record champions. They know what they're doing more than anyone else once in front. And I'll be stunned if they throw it away. Yeah, me too. I mean, selfishly, I'm a little bit bummed as a neutral that we aren't going to have more of a title race. But you also just have to admire Bayern's quality. They deserved that yesterday. Yeah, and quality comes shining through from top to bottom with this team. And I think we should mention Hansi Flick, the coach, because they were in disarray before he took over the reins. He had been part of the coaching staff under the previous coach, Niko Kovac. And it was remarkable to me how quickly he saw what the problem was and made it look simple in providing a solution. And you know, Bayern are back to their effortless ways. What's interesting is he's done it in a slightly unorthodox way with players out of position. I mean, at the start of the season, we didn't think Alfonso Davies was going to be a left back. (laughs) He's a a pretty useful left back, isn't he? Pretty good. Uh, We didn't think, yeah, we didn't think David Alaba was going to be the defensive chief. But now uh, Flick has come to depend upon Alaba as the man to bring the ball out from the back. At the start of the season, it was visualized that Lucas Hernandez would be the the man in charge at the back. He got injured. Niklas Zule, another one who got injured. So it was a case of sort of, you know, try some different things for Bayern. And Alaba as a centre-back, something that has worked. And then everything else has just fallen into place for Hansi Flick. But I think the importance of man management, of someone who understands that club being in charge, um, never more significant than with Flick and the fact that Bayern have just got better and better under his stewardship. Yeah, and also Thomas Mueller 
having a much bigger role under Flick in sort of returning to a position where he has a just a tremendous influence on their games. Yeah, and Müller was a figure apparently on the way out before Flick took over. He was not getting a game under Niko Kovac. Uh, Felipe Coutinho, of course, had been signed, and there was this big debate with Coutinho there. Is that genuinely the end for Thomas Müller? But, you know, Flick comes in and Müller is a player revitalized. It's like the youthful Thomas Müller all over again, albeit nowadays more about assists than scoring goals. He can still score. But again, that sort of player is always going to have a place at Bayern, even as he gets into his 30s, because he is a local guy. The club is in his DNA, will always be. And I'll be shocked if Thomas Müller doesn't have some major involvement with Bayern off the pitch once his playing days are over. Now, I have to say, I am also selfishly bummed out that I'm not hearing you on these Bundesliga broadcasts. Was there ever a chance that you could have called a game for the world feed from your home in the Boston area? Or was that just never a possibility? Well, thank you for those kind words. I'm greatly missing uh, commentating on the Bundesliga as well. It was discussed briefly as a group, but more really as a sort of a backup option, because if you think about it from the point of view of the Bundesliga and the productions are done in-house in Germany, from their point of view, they wanted to absolutely make sure that they could guarantee that the world feed would go out. Because for many broadcasters around the world, um, you know, they either take the world feed or even if they don't, the world feed is their backup. So... It's the insurance policy, if you like. So it has to be ironclad. And we all know that, you know, technically nowadays you could do a commentary from home. It is being done by other broadcasters around the world. But do you want to make that the the default commentary for the world amid all the uncertainties with Internet and, you know, phones ringing and, uh, you know, video is an issue as well. Is the video going to sync up? So it was spoken about, but they have been able to come up with a solution um, working from a studio in Cologne and also with one in London. So I'm delighted for my colleagues because many of them obviously haven't been working for a long time because of the layoff as well. So it's meant work for them. Uh, I'm sort of the odd one out living here in the U.S. Say, but as I say, you know, there are more serious things going on at the moment, and I'm delighted to be able to sit back and watch the matches. You know, there's so much attention on Germany right now as the only major soccer league staging games, and your Twitter feed at Raycom, R A E C O M M, has been such an essential resource for me and a lot of other people with your tweets and your videos about German culture and the teams themselves. Could we go back and get your story of how you got so connected to Germany in the first place as a Scottish guy? Yeah, I'm glad you've asked that question because it is dear to my heart, this whole story. And I can tell you that as an Aberdonian, Aberdeen, my city, on the North Sea coast, northeast of Scotland, we had a direct radio link with the northern part of Germany. So, you know, again, we're going back to the 1970s and 1980s, no internet. The idea of listening to radio from overseas, you know, even Scotland, part of Europe, wasn't something that was really done. But we had this clear 
as a bell signal from Hamburg, from NDR, Norddeutsche Rundfunk, North German Radio. Now, I had started learning German, and I realized early on that I loved it, that it just it came to me quite naturally. I had a real passion for it, um, and I, I became sort of obsessed to the point of you know going above and beyond. And the above and beyond extended to listening to this German radio station, and of course, with my love of soccer, of football as well, I figured out pretty early on that I could listen to the Bundesliga on the station. So I started doing that. And, you know, obviously I was interested in other things too and the news and the music, but my eyes would light up when the Bundesliga would come on. So it sort of gave me a head start over probably everyone else of my age group in being able to, to sit and listen to the Bundesliga. And most of my friends at the time would say, you're crazy, aren't you? Sitting listening to German radio. But I would say, no, it's not crazy. It's, uh, it's really inspiring and it's, um, it's, it's invigorating to do it. So um, I, I obviously kicked on from there and um, developed relations with a school in West Germany, but right on the border with the former East Germany. Now, I was also sort of quite politically inclined. So I found this really fascinating too. So I got to spend time there. And when I say right on the border, I mean, you know, where that bookshelf is behind me, um, talking to you now, Grant, just a couple of yards behind me, um, that was the border. So you could see the the East German watchtowers and the guards looking over with the binoculars into the West. So it was a sort of a uh, you know, a dual thing for me. It was an interest in German language. It was an interest in culture, in politics, obviously in football and soccer. And so when I went there to help out in the school, the local comprehensive school, I, of course, would go to games. So this would be now the mid-1980s. And I went to as many games as I could in the top division, in the second division, in the lower divisions. Uh, it was sort of a dream come true for me at that age because I got to indulge all my, my passions at once. That's amazing. Um, and so how did that progress, sort of, your your interest and love for Germany in the years thereafter? Well, it progressed perhaps a bit more slowly after that, because once I started working for the BBC in Glasgow, I didn't have as many opportunities to go to Germany. But, of course, in those days, the Scottish clubs that I was covering were pretty good, and they would often end up having games in Germany. So um, that allowed me, I thought at the time, to have a bit of an advantage over everyone else, because you know I could read the papers, and I could listen to the radio, and watch TV, and, and all the rest of it. And I found it quite useful, too, in terms of dealing um, with UEFA and FIFA, because again, in the late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't necessarily a given that you would call Zurich, um, you know, or call UEFA headquarters in Geneva and have English spoken. And I found that having that ability, again, was just something different and, and maybe gave me a little bit of a leg up. Um, but it didn't come in as useful uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, really, until the big tournaments came around, World Cups and Euros. And then in more recent years, when I went back to the UK to work for ESPN UK and then BT Sport, they had Bundesliga rights. And they put me on the Bundesliga games, which, of course, I was delighted about. And that led to an interest from the Bundesliga's world feed, which was becoming established. Um, and, and they said, you know, could you come across to Germany and do some games for us as well in English for the, the international feed? So uh, in the last decade, I've sort of gone back to my youth again and um, been able to to be this little boy that uh, that loved German language and culture. <laughs> and now I get to do it as part of my profession again. Fantastic. Uh, could you actually work games in German if you had to? Well, I probably could do it, but it would not sound, you know, 
hundred percent to to my own standards. I mean, I, you know, I speak German fluently, but I always think there's a, a bit of a difference in terms of fluency and then broadcast fluency. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I have the words and and I, I love the language dearly, but um, uh, I've never taken that step. I often get interviewed in German if ever there's a situation, you know, where there's a, a you know something to do with English football or uh, English language, and I happen to be around. Um, I always find a, that there's a microphone being thrown in my face because they can get. Some somebody talking German. But uh, no, it, it would be a fun challenge one of these days to um, to embark upon what you've mentioned. But as I say, I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So f- for me to do that and, and, and it be not 100% to my own standards you know, would make it you know, one of these things that, uh, as I say, would be fun, but I'd go into it with a little bit of fear. <laughs> so, so how did you get the idea to do your Twitter videos on German games that you've been doing recently? To be honest, it was just one day. It was a, a, a nice day in the garden. We've got a lovely garden here. We live near the ocean. And um, I was sort of thinking to myself, goodness, the Bundesliga is coming back. And there's a lot of interest from people who normally don't follow it. You know, I've got all this interest and, and hopefully some knowledge as well. Why don't I try to share it? And, and I was thinking, well, you know, you can do it in a dry way on Twitter just by you know, by putting tweets out, which I do anyway. But I thought, you know, we've got this lovely um, flowering cherry tree in the garden. It would be nice to be able to have a, you know, a soothing little backdrop and just talk about the Bundesliga for a couple of minutes, but in a different way, you know, not just talking about tactics and about, you know, who's the best player in this team, maybe some of that. But I I sort of thought, and I've always thought, Grant, to be honest, that German football has a rich tapestry of material about clubs that, mostly goes untold. I think there's a tendency to romanticize English football um, in the USA, for example. And I think that is because of the common language. I think the common language makes those stories uh, stories easier to to tell. Um, Germany has those stories too. Um, Every club has a story, no matter where it is in the world. So I thought this was a good time, especially with the uh, Revier Derby, Dortmund against Schalke, which is my favorite German fixture, being one of the first games to come back following the layoff. I thought, let's sit down and tell people about the Revier Derby, you know, just in a way that's not, um, you know, X's and O's soccer, but more about the, the rich rivalry between these two teams in the industrial heart of Germany. And that sort of, you know, kicked on from there. I thought, well, let's do a few more. And, um, you know, did one about the, uh, the meeting of Hertha and Union last week, the two Berlin clubs, both in the Bundesliga for the first time. And uh, I have to say, of all the things I've done on Twitter, it seems to, to be one of the more popular um, additions. So I've really enjoyed it. It's made me sort of think about how to, to get the story across in a concise two-minute form. And if it's helped other people appreciate the Bundesliga even a small bit more, then I'm thrilled to bits. Well, in my much more limited experience traveling in Germany and covering soccer, it it hit me in a way that I didn't know before my trips that there's a big difference in states around Germany and in different regions. And I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on those differences. I mean, I've learned from your videos what kind of beer I should order in Cologne and what kind in (laughs) Dusseldorf. Do you have detailed stuff like this for for all 18 Bundesliga teams? <laughs> I do try to keep a file uh, ongoing of different things about the clubs. I, I love whimsy. I love 
uh, quirkiness when it comes to clubs. And I always think that's the thing as a commentator that, that you should tell on the air, especially for a world feed when, you know, people might know, uh, might know a lot about Borussia Dortmund or Bayern. They might know less about Augsburg or about Mainz, you know. So it's good to be able to have those stories. And you don't want to become repetitive, but there are new people tuning in all the time. And um, you're absolutely right. Germany is very decentralized as a country. It, it is not a top-down system of government at all. There is tremendous autonomy from one state to another. There are 16 states in all. So, um, so yeah, I do. And it's one of the things when I do my preparation for games, I, I, I've spoken about this before, I do it all on one handwritten sheet of paper. But part of that handwritten sheet uh, is always the whimsy. And I just, you know, every time I do a team I haven't broadcast maybe for a year or two, I just remind myself about the little factoids that make that city and that team special. So when you're on site for games in Germany, do you go out of your way to get a, a sense of the local culture? I know how much time you spend on preparation. Do you have time to get a sense of the local culture? I always try to, Grant. It's something that I'm very big on. Um, if I'm in a new city, then I will take the time to just walk around it for two or three hours. And I, I do it uh, being the sort of inquisitive person that I am, you know, nosy kind of person, um, you know, trying to find a little line that, that, that I don't know about that I can maybe use during commentary. Uh, and that is the great thing. I hadn't been to Leipzig before until a couple of years ago. I've since been two or three times. And, you know, it's a fascinating city. When you think about the end of the 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 GDR, East Germany as it was, then you, you think about some of the things that happened in Leipzig. It's the city of heroes. That's the, the name bestowed upon it. So you go over all these little things and you know try to find new angles, but every place is different. And I am a huge believer that you do have to give the viewer, if you're doing your job as a commentator, you have to give the viewer the sort of sense of place. Um, because you know, okay, you know, games are, are happening and we're watching them and sometimes not giving too much thought about, you know, where they actually are, are taking place. But this is where it all started for me as an inquisitive seven-year-old in 1974, watching that World Cup in West Germany as it was. And I remember just asking my dad constantly, you know, um, Dortmund, tell me about Dortmund, you know, Frankfurt, where, where's Frankfurt? What, what's that all about? You know, um, Hamburg, you know, give me the lowdown in all these cities. And I can imagine a lot of other people around the world, you know, they might know the names of these clubs, but, you know, what is it that makes, um, you know, Cologne special? And Cologne is the city that's dearest to my heart because I've spent more time there than anywhere else. And it is a special place. It's, you know, the most beautiful city in Germany, but not necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing city in Germany. But the beauty is because of the, the people and the community and the, um, the friendliness and all these things. So um, I always think if you can bring these things out on air, having been to these places and, you know, shown an interest in them and a bit of a love of culture generally, then that's bound to enhance the commentary. So I've got to ask you a question about the hot button issue for a lot of people watching on television right now. How do you feel about simulated crowd noise on the Bundesliga broadcast? I'm glad you've asked me that question, and I'll give you my personal opinion on it. And I should say, first of all, that there's probably some confusion because maybe there's an assumption that in Germany, everybody is watching the games with enhanced audio, with this artificial track. It's not as simple as that. If you're in Germany at the moment and you have a particular receiver, then you have the option of pressing a button, 
which allows you to have this enhanced crowd track. The default is no enhanced crowd track, just the shouts of the players and the coaches and the echoing sounds from the stadium. I think my position is that I like the choice situation so that, you know, if I had a a remote in front of me and I could decide whether or not I want to have that crowd track, great. You know, personally, I probably would go without the crowd track because, uh, and again, this might be because I'm a German speaker and I like hearing what the, the German players are saying to each other. I think it's also because organically that is what is happening at these games. You know, the crowd is not there. The players are not hearing this track that's being piped in. Um, so, you know, the way I see it, I, I like to listen to things as they are, um, you know, warts and all. It's not ideal. We would rather have fans inside the stadium, but the fans are not inside the stadium. So, again, that's why I say it's a personal opinion. And I listen to the games a lot on German radio, too. And on German radio, um, it sounds like a totally different game. I was uh, flicking yesterday between the um, the TV coverage with the crowd the, the artificial crowd and the radio coverage without it uh, on German radio and, uh, you know, sounded like two totally different games. And uh, as I say, I, I think that it just depends on, on really what you, you like and what you find comforting. For me, um, I would veer towards not having the crowd. I'm interested, Grant, what you think. Thanks for asking. I mean, I've gone back and forth because on a previous podcast episode earlier this week, it was right after they'd started making this available in the U.S. We don't have a choice here in the U.S. Yeah. on whether it's no crowd noise or the simulated noise. And it was better. The, the simulated crowd noise was better than I was expecting. And yep. you would think as a journalist, I would be up in arms about anything fake. <laughs> and <laughs> and it bothered me less than I expected. But then for the Bayern Dortmund game, I think there was too much. It was like they dialed it up even more. And it started to stand out to me in a way that um, I didn't like as much. But then I also put out a survey on my Twitter. And what's fascinating is it's really split down the middle among my followers. I've got more than 3,000 votes on this question. Do you prefer simulated crowd noise or none? And it's right now it's like 52%, 53% prefer the simulated crowd noise, but 47, 48% would prefer to have none. So I I kind of wish we had that option here in the US that they have in Germany. Yeah, to me, that's the ideal solution. Then you can make the choice for yourself. I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with the default being uh, the artificial crowd track and, and not having the ability to listen to it as it is. But I recognize if there's no way to provide that choice, then uh, it, it is a, a, a very difficult situation. So, um, yeah, I, I'll watch this one closely. And I'm glad you've done the, the survey on Twitter. It would be interesting to see similar results, for example, if it were a UK survey or a European country, if it would be 52 or 53%, or if it might be considerably the other way. I have a feeling it might be the other way, but, but I have no you know, real way of knowing that. Now, here's another hypothetical question for you. If you were broadcasting one of these games and you knew that it, there would be no crowd sounds, no artificial crowd sounds to it, the entirety of your audience, would that change how you go about broadcasting the game? 
It probably would. And, and that is the other difficulty that you've touched on. Uh, when you're broadcasting, you want your voice to blend in with the surroundings. You know, you never want to overpower the game. But how do you do that if you are broadcasting and in your ears you have just the organic shouts from the stadium? You know, if you had in your ears this alternative, this secondary track, then, um, you know, you might project a lot more. And I would be worried that I might be overpowering what's actually happening on the pitch. So it's it's quite a difficult one for commentators. I've actually spoken to some of my colleagues about it, and some are dead against it. And others actually think that it enhances their commentary, that, that it gives them something to um, to use as sort of feedback during the game. So I suspect that this is a debate that's going to go on and on, and there's not going to be a, an agreement on it, and it's a matter of what you like, which, again, takes us back to, to my original answer, which is choice is best. If there were a way to give people a choice, then you know that is 100% ideal. I am curious to see how this experiment with the Bundesliga and artificial crowd noise impacts U.S. sports leagues and yep. how they present things. And I've been trying to think about how just as a sport and the, the natural sounds of the sport, basketball and ice hockey and NFL are different. But then I also think I know how U.S. broadcasters tend to work, and I expect they'll err on the side of, of artificial crowd noise. What are you expecting? I'm sure that this is a bit of a trial balloon in many respects. I'm sure that people are watching it and thinking, okay, you know, let's see how this works and can we modify it? Can we make use of it when it comes to American sports? And, and you know, I'm sure that that has been a discussion point uh, in the higher echelons of, of networks and, and other places like that. Um, where I would be a little bit worried is, and, and hopefully it would never come to this, I'd be worried that if we open Pandora's box here, and if we think this is a success, you probably know where I'm going with this, if in future we are covering events that don't have a lot of fans, you know, does this open the door for a producer somewhere to say, oh, well, that worked quite well before. Let's just pump in some fake noise and, and make the thing come to life. And, and that would worry me because that is being dishonest. And I, I am a big believer in the natural sounds of sport, you know, be they whatever they are. And at the moment, obviously, as I said, we don't have football as it's meant to be. As they would say in Germany, we have games without fans, ghost games, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it, it is temporary. You know, we don't know how temporary. But um, I think we, we just have to be a little bit careful that we don't think this is something that is going to be new and lasting in terms of pumping things in. So the virus is going to permanently change a lot of the ways the world does business. Do you think we'll see fewer broadcasters on site in the stadium as a result of this? I think that is absolutely going to be the case. We're already seeing it in Germany where places are restricted in terms of media, full stop, broadcasters as well. All the games that you hear on the world feed now are being done from a studio either in Cologne or in London. And it stands to reason it's going to be that way for broadcasters around the world. Uh, there are safety concerns. It's just the, you know, the manner of the hygiene plan in the case of Germany that has been drawn up that allows for only a certain number of people inside the venue. It's just over 300 when you consider the sort of the inner ring and the outer ring. 
And, you know, that changes things. I have read interviews with a few prominent broadcasters in the U.S. who've said, no way would I ever accept calling a game when I'm not in the stadium. Now, for those of us who cover this sport, um, it's not so unusual because chances are, if we've been broadcasting the sport for a long time, we have done countless matches off tube. And it can be done off tube. Is it as good off tube? No. But, you know, a lot of things aren't as good as, as they were a few months ago. These are abnormal times. And I think we just have to accept that that's the case. So you've mentioned to me in the past that one of your good friends is Ian Dark, who is also yes. revered here in the United States. Have you and Ian been in touch at all during the last couple of months? Yes, we talk to each other, not every day, but, but every few days. And actually, I've been talking to him a lot this week because Ian is one of the broadcasters back in the UK who, through BT Sport, is doing the Bundesliga from home. So oh, wow. he's got a setup in his house, and he wrote a very good piece about it for one of the websites recently, and talking about the uncertainties and you know lines going down and things like that. But now I've been, you know, working with Ian, helping Ian. We help each other a lot. And I think you know commentators do that, especially commentators who are friends with each other. Uh, Ian obviously watches more Premier League than I do. I watch more Bundesliga than he does. So we tend to share information, and often there's a line I'll have from Germany that I'll give to him and vice versa. So I was actually just sending him some material this morning for a game he has coming up. And uh, this is going to be his new normal for a little while doing Bundesliga matches. So we talk a lot and, uh, you know, compare notes and, and text and, uh, you know, talk about the frustrations of, of the current period and, and some of the good things too that have, have come about, you know, less travel and spending a bit more time at home. It's obviously not what we would want to do in, in normal times when, uh, when, when our sport is on. But uh, yeah, the answer to the question is we, we stay in touch and, and talk a lot. We're winding down here with Derek Ray. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, you and I did a fun interview on my previous podcast a couple of years ago where we talked about your origin story in the business. There are some great things in there about you starting at such a young age in Aberdeen and being around Sir Alex Ferguson when he was coaching that yeah. team that beat Real Madrid in, in a European final. Uh, and then you coming to the U.S. for World Cup 94 and just some of the things you've done over the years, like calling various embassies to get the right pronunciations of players' names. People should go and listen to that if they can, because uh, I don't want to just you know do the same thing over again. But I am curious, what is the most work you've ever done to get a pronunciation for a player's name? Most work I've ever done. Um, I think the most work I've ever done, there was a time a few years ago when I was working in England. And I was given a Europa League qualifying match between Liverpool and Gommel. And it was a matter of trying to to get these pronunciations right, but not really having any, any source material or any good contact to discuss it with, you know? So I, you know, racked my brain. You know, I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this right? And I was aware that, that Gommel could also be pronounced Hommel. Uh, you know, there were different sort of cultural, uh, linguistic um, varieties and, and different cultures within the country. So um, that one took a long time. And finally, I... It was the day before the game, somebody said, oh, I've got a friend who is an expert in all Slavic and Russian-style languages. And um, 
Finally got on the phone with him, and he gave me all the, the variations. Because, you see, I like to get the variations, too. I like to get, okay, this is how they say it here, but it could actually be said this way in a particular region of the country. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so, so countries like Belarus, um, that's where it, it can get particularly tricky because I don't really have a background in, in languages of that nature. So that would probably be the hardest. <laughs> but um, I, I do try to put the, the work into getting those things right. Nice. Uh, so I want to wrap up here with what I kind of call the rapid fire round. I've done this with players and coaches. I don't know if I've done it with broadcasters before, but I'm going to do it with you. Um, what is the most memorable soccer match to you that you have ever called and why? By a long way, Milan against Liverpool in the 2005 Champions League final in Istanbul. And why? Because I think I realized after it was all over, first of all, we traveled you know, all the way to Istanbul, this wonderfully exotic place. But I think I realized that, that this was something special. And you know, we were very lucky just to be there and to be able to put words to an occasion that might not be repeated in our lifetime. You know, it, it was the most dramatic comeback in a European final that you're ever likely to see. And as a commentator, to get the chance to broadcast that, to be there, to have it all right in front of you, it doesn't get any better. Favorite men's World Cup you have worked and why? Favorite men's World Cup that I have worked, I think actually was the very first World Cup that I worked. Not because the World Cup was particularly great. It wasn't. This was Italian 90. It wasn't a great World Cup. It was actually a poor World Cup. But I just loved the fact that I was in Italy. I was bouncing around from game to game. I was working with legends. The great Dennis Law was my co-commentator, one of my heroes. Um, everything just came to life for me. Uh, you know, finally being able to taste this as a commentator. You know, I mentioned earlier having having loved the World Cup since 1974, the first one that I watched as a boy. Um, so 1990 will always have the sense of magic, even though from the playing point of view, it's probably the worst World Cup I've actually covered. Favorite women's World Cup you have worked and why? I'm going to give that one to the most recent one, Grant, that we were both at in France. I thought, and it was my third Women's World Cup as a broadcaster, I thought this was when everything sort of fell into place. The level of competition was much higher. Uh, the U.S. were still the best team, and they demonstrated that, my goodness. But I thought it could have gone the other way at various times in that tournament, you know. Uh, it didn't, and that's a great tribute to the U.S. women's national team. But again, I think it came down to the country. It's the perfect size of country for a major tournament. It was a delight to travel to, to all these wonderful places, to work with somebody like Danielle Slayton, who was a joy the whole time in the production team we had. And um, I just really enjoyed telling the stories, the evolving stories of these countries as they get better and better in terms of women's soccer. Best player you've ever broadcast a game for? Well, I'd have to say Messi or Ronaldo. Uh, and obviously, they are the, the two greats of their generation. But I'll give you a different answer, Grant, because the one who's actually resonated most with me as a commentator would be neither. It would be Ronaldinho um, of Barcelona. And I say that just because he, I think he gave me as a commentator more great moments 
than either Messi or Ronaldo, simply because I was broadcasting La Liga every week. And I remember I used to always be excited when I did Barcelona because I knew Ronaldinho would do something at the game that defied description. Uh, he was just that sort of player. He was a one-off. He was a throwback. And, um, you know, I used to call him King Ronnie and, and the, the camp now uh, was his courtyard. And my partner, Tommy Smith, used to dislike that because he wasn't as fond of Ronaldinho. He thought I sort of overdid that. And it was a sort of a running gag between the pair of us. But no, Ronaldinho for me, um, you know, a player the like of which we'll, we'll never see again. And lastly, favorite gantry or broadcast location in a world stadium and why? That one goes to the stadium in Dortmund, the Zignali Duna Park, to give it its official name, the Westfalenstadion, as the locals still prefer to call it. I've always said that if I had the choice to pick one place to do my last game as a commentator, that's the one I would choose. It's just a temple of football for me. And I always get excited every time I walk around it. I always, before a game, I do that. I walk around it two or three times just to get the atmosphere again. And it means so much to the people in Dortmund. Uh, it's such a traditional club. And the angle, the viewing angle is just about perfect. It's uh, just the right height. You see everything in front of you. It's the perfect stadium, and so I'd be hard-pressed to, to pick any other commentary gantry above that one. You can find Derek Ray on Twitter at Raycom, R-A-E-C-O-M-M. Really want to thank you for everything you've done on that Twitter feed, just as a, as a citizen, as a lover of soccer and German soccer, and want to thank you for coming on the show today. Grant, thank you for having me. All the best to you and to Celine for the fabulous work you've done these last two or three months as well. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Derek Ray, as well as my friends Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove at the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I also want to thank Nathan McVitie and Zach Goldman for their work with show branding and identity. I'm back on Monday with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.